series speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege we have once again to study your word. And this evening we have a very serious prophecy to take up. And as we take it up seriously, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the presence of your angels. We pray that you'll be here with us, that you'll be close to us, that you'll guide us every step of the way as we work through this prophecy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I don't want to discourage you from putting questions in the box. Don't misunderstand me, will you? No? Good? Keep the questions coming. Yeah, we like to have good questions. We will endeavour to answer every question that comes in. Okay, tonight's subject. The Antichrist of Bible Prophecy, Part 2. And so last night, we're going to do a short review of last night's subject. Last night, we looked at a number of different aspects of the Antichrist. We found, first of all, that the Antichrist is known by a number of different names. The only place in the Bible that is called the Antichrist is in 1 John. In 2 Thessalonians, he's called the man of sin. In Daniel chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In Daniel chapter 11, he's called the king of the north. In Revelation chapter 13, he's called the beast. And in Revelation chapter 17, the Antichrist is symbolized by a woman holding a golden cup. We mentioned this last night, didn't we? So here you have your woman holding a golden cup. And what you find is, is this woman is depicted in a number of different ways. Here she is holding an Egyptian pyramid. And we've been looking night by night at the connections with ancient Egypt. Here she is again, this time cradling the sun. And we've noticed that sun worship was universal in the ancient world and a significant or probably the most significant aspect of the ancient mystery religions. Here she is once again with the rays of the sun coming out of her head. And here she is cradling a serpent this time. Of course, we know what the serpent symbolizes. And we looked at how down through history, consistently over and over again, every time a bad guy comes along, he gets labeled as being the Antichrist. And who knows who's going to come along next and get labeled as the Antichrist. However, this is a subject on which you cannot afford to speculate. In fact, if we go to Revelation chapter 14, let's do a, a short review here as to why we cannot speculate as to who the Antichrist is. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9, the Bible says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Sorry, I'm going too fast. Someone told me last night I need to slow down. Revelation 14, verse 10. Here we go. If anyone worships the beast, verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I had somebody come to me one time and they said, you know, I don't like the God of the New Testament. I only like the God of, sorry, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I only like the God of the New Testament. I said, well, Why? He says, because there's so much wrath in the Old Testament. I said, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read Revelation chapter 14? There is nothing like this in the Old Testament. This is the only place in the Bible where wrath is poured out undiluted. 
Now, does it make any sense that God would give us a warning, don't worship the beast, or I will pour wrath out undiluted, but I'm not going to tell you who the beast is? Does that make any sense at all? Absolutely not. Makes no sense at all. So, we need to understand who it is. And once again, we noted last night that this, the beast, is a global power and the issue surrounding the beast is, is all about worship. And the highest form of worship is what? Obedience. You see, I could, I could come here and I could say, oh, I don't worship the beast because I don't get down on my knees and worship the beast. But if I obey the beast... What am I actually demonstrating by my actions? I am demonstrating where my allegiance truly lies. Isn't that so? Yeah, actions speak louder than words, don't they? Revelation chapter 17. Let's read this passage over here in Revelation 17. We read this several nights ago. Revelation 17 and verse 12. The Bible says the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Notice what you have here, 10 kings, which have received, that's 10 kings, plural, received no kingdom, singular, as yet, but received power for one hour with the beast. 10 being a symbol of the whole world at the end of time. We have the political leaders of the whole world at the end of time endeavouring to create one kingdom, It goes on. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength under the beast. So we find that the beast here is a unifying power at the end of... It is the point of unity. We also found last night that it is a religious power. And one of the things that we have looked at in this series is that religion is the driving force behind globalism in our world today. You don't have to scratch the surface very far and people say, you know, globalism is all about money or globalism is all about power. But when you really start to scratch back the surface, you find that it is all about worship. You see, the reality is, what are you going to do once you have all the money? What are you going to do once you have all the power? Is the natural human heart ever satisfied? Look back through history. Look at those individuals who reached that point where they had all the money and all the power. What was the next step they took? They wanted worship. Every time the same thing has taken place. And that's how the ancient world emperors in the past came to consider themselves as divine beings. Well, last night we looked into Daniel chapter 7. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we found a prophecy paralleling the other prophecies. This time, rather than four metals, as in uh, Daniel chapter 2, rather than uh, animals of sacrifice, as in Daniel chapter 8, you have beasts of prey. We looked at the four of them right here. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, we found how that each one of these fulfilled the prophecies. Then we came down to the last one being Imperial Rome with the ten horns on its head. And in the explanation of the prophecy, we noted this in verse 24. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings or kingdoms that shall arise. And another shall arise after them and shall be different from the first and shall subdue three kings. That's Daniel 7 verse 
24. And so we found that those horns were symbols of kingdoms. We noted that Imperial Rome was not conquered by another nation, another empire, but it collapsed initially into exactly 10 separate nations. Then we noted a number of, we noted how that this was a parallel, of course, with the other prophecies. And we noted that the prophecy was written on the basis of a number of symbols. How was it that we defined what beast horns and heads were? How did we come to the conclusion that we're talking about kingdoms, empires, nations, etc.? How did we come to that conclusion? Yeah, the Bible said so. Yeah, I didn't interpret it. The Bible interpreted itself, right? It's always a good thing when you don't have to interpret the Bible. You can simply let the Bible interpret itself. You know you're safe when you do that. Then how did we know what the sea symbolized? How did we find that out? The Bible said so. The Bible said the sea means multitudes, nations, and tongues. Then we looked for wind, symbolizing war. Then we found that a day symbolizes a year. Well, we've been looking at that over several nights, haven't we? So a day symbolizes a year. And every single one of these, we looked for Bible references to find out exactly what it was talking about. So we didn't have to make anything up. That's always good news when you don't have to make anything up. Isn't that so? Good. We looked at the 10 nations that Rome divided into. And then we go to Daniel chapter 7. And verse 8, he's getting towards the end of the prophecy, the vision that he's seeing. And Daniel says, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And so we had the rise of the little horn Right here, and we look for 10 identifying marks. Now, the Bible says that the little horn would arise among the 10 horns out of the head of the fourth beast. Is that clear? Yes, so we know exactly the geographical location of the rise of the Antichrist is going to rise out of Rome. Then the Bible said that as he came to power, the 10 horns, he rose among the 10 horns. In other words, the 10 horns were already in place. And as he rises, He uproots three. So somewhere between the ten and when those original ten are reduced back to seven, we have the rise of the Antichrist. Isn't that so? It gives us our time period. Now from history, we know that to be between the years 476 and 538. Then we found, as we mentioned before, that he would uproot three other kingdoms in coming to power. He would speak great words against the Most High. Revelation chapter 13 defines that as being blasphemy. And there are a number of places in the Bible where the Bible gives you a biblical definition of blasphemy. Gives you two definitions. Number one, claiming to be God. Number two, claiming prerogatives that belong to God alone. In other words, the power to be able to forgive sins. Can I forgive your sins? No, no. Only God can do that. The Bible says there is only one mediator between us and God, the man, Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, I am so thankful for that. He is the one who gave his life for me. He is the one who can mediate for me. And that's good news for me because that's how I receive forgiveness of my sins. And every single one of us here can experience exactly the same forgiveness. Isn't that good news? Praise God. All right, we continued on. The Bible said his look was more stout than his fellows. That meant he would be stronger 
than the others. He would persecute God's people. He would be different. Why? Because here you do not only have a state, a government, a kingdom, but you also have the symbol of a woman. Now, what does a woman symbolize in Bible prophecy? A church. So a beast symbolizes a state. A woman symbolizes a church. That's a bit different, isn't it? Very different from the other nations. And if you look here, you'll find that four of these identifying marks are political. One is religious. Four of these are religious. One is political. And so we have this mixture together, a religio-political power united together. Then the Bible says that he would think that he could change God's law. If it was his own law, he would change it. You can change your own law, you can't change God's law. He would persecute, the Bible says, for a time, times and half a time, or one year, two years and half a year. And we concluded that that came to 1260 years. How did we come to that conclusion? One day equals what? One year. And how many days are there in a year? Nah, I got, a, I got a whole bunch of different answers that time. Have you suddenly got confused over how many days there are in a year? Okay, because I was a bit of a trick question. You're, you're wondering, okay, how many days are there in our year? And how many days are there in a biblical year? 360, that's right. You go back to the time of the flood, uh, the book of Genesis, and you'll find that God established originally the year as being 360 days long. And that's the year that is used throughout the book, the, throughout the Bible and in Bible prophecy. This is found in seven different places in the Bible, each time confirming that it is 1,260 years. How do we find this period of persecution coming to end? With a deadly wound that would be followed by a miraculous healing in which all of the world would be implicated. One of the most interesting parts of this prophecy right here. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, who is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. Before we answer that question, I'm going to make a number of observations, things that we know so far. Number one, the Antichrist is symbolized by a beast. That means that we know that the Antichrist is a state, a nation, a country. Secondly, The Antichrist is symbolized by a woman. That means that we know that this is a church as well. Now, let me make a very important observation right here. It is the Antichrist is not an individual. A beast in Bible prophecy is not a symbol of an individual. Neither is a woman a symbol of an individual. We need to make that abundantly plain. It is not an individual. However, in 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist is spoken of as the man of sin. So we know this, there is a man at its head. Which is interesting, when you study the Antichrist in the Bible, you only ever find it referred to as having a man at its head. You'll never hear it referred to as having a queen. So that starts to narrow your list of nations down A little. Let me share something else. Okay, so we've got a man in its head. It does not refer 
to individual members. And you might be asking, well, why do I make that statement right there? Let me illustrate very, very clearly why I make that statement. The beast of Revelation 13 is not the only beast in the Bible. In fact, right there in Revelation chapter 13, you have two beasts. And they're both just as bad as each other. And in a future subject, we're going to cover the second beast. Now, I'm giving a little bit away here of something that's coming up in a future subject. So if I'm going to give, if I'm going to give something away, you've got to promise me you're going to come to that subject, right? Yeah? You promise you come to that subject? I'll give you, if, I, if, I, if I give something away, you promise, you've got to promise me you'll come back, all right? We all going to do that? Good. All right. We're going to talk about the United States in Bible prophecy. Now, my wife is an American citizen, which means that both of my boys are citizens of the United States. Just because the Bible has some very strong things to say about America, does that mean that all Americans are automatically lost? Of course not. Your salvation is not found in your country or your church. Your salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Good. I'm glad that that's clear because it needs to be clear. I don't want to strip on anybody's toes here this evening. I'm not coming here and saying, you know, some people are lost and some people are saved. That is for God to figure out, isn't that so? And I'm glad to leave it in his hands. Okay. Let's look at a couple of... I promised I'd give you a couple of extras, didn't I? Now I promise that? Okay. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. And while we're turning there, I'll mention something that I mentioned last night. And last night we mentioned that it seems that every time a bad guy, a major bad guy comes along in our world, he gets labelled as being the Antichrist. Isn't that so? Yeah? Let me share with you something. The devil is not that foolish. He's not going to bring a bad guy along and try and fool us all into thinking he's the Antichrist. That would be rather obvious. The Bible says, no, he's not the bad guy. He's the good guy, apparently. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He's saying, calm down a bit, Thessalonians. Something has to happen first. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the return of Jesus, shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of what? Perdition. Do you know who the son of perdition is or was? It's only found in one other place in the Bible. The son of perdition is Judas. Now let's think about Judas for a moment. Who was Judas? Judas was one of the disciples, isn't that so? He was a part of the inner circle and he was seen as being one of the good guys. In fact, it was expected by many of the disciples that he would be the one who would be prime minister in Jesus' kingdom to come because of the skills that Judas had. 
So if Judas was one of the good guys and he was a part of the inner circle, we're not going to look outside of Christianity to find the Antichrist, are we? We've got to look for inside for somebody who looks or something that looks really good. Now, did Judas do a lot of good things during his life? Absolutely, he did a lot of good things. Was he doing a few sneaky things behind, it, behind up people's back? Ah, he was indeed. He controlled the money bag. And that wasn't a good thing when it came to Judas. All right, so we're going, we've got to look for the good guy. We've got to look inside of Christianity, not outside. All right, let's look for a, another identifying mark. Let's go over to Timothy. And while we're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 4, let me give you another clue from Daniel chapter 7 that we didn't mention last night. The Bible describes the Antichrist as being a little horn, isn't that so? That would indicate a little nation, wouldn't you think? Yeah, a little nation. One more identifying mark. First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, so this is the, this is the end of time, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, What doctrines are they going to get involved in? Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Verse 3, forbidding to marry. What doctrine is that? What do we call that? That's the doctrine of celibacy, right? And commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Friends, let's put this together for a moment. The Bible says that the Antichrist would arise out of Rome, that it would be a little nation, there would be a man at its head, not a queen, that it would be the inner circle of Christianity and teach the doctrine of... What's the smallest nation in Western Europe that uh, is both a church and a state, rose out of Rome, has the doctrine of celibacy? What are we talking about? Didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you that I wouldn't even have to tell you who it was? That's the Vatican City right there. That's exactly what we're talking about, the Vatican City. I didn't have to tell you that, did I? I just showed you what the Bible said, and when I share what the Bible said, it becomes so clear, doesn't it? So what about all of those other identifying marks? And by the way, by the way, before I go on, I know there are a number of you here this evening who are Roman Catholics. Does that mean that you are lost? Well, of course it doesn't. That's not the issue. It does not refer to the individual members. It refers to the system, and we mean to make that very, very clear. Okay, it's part of the inner circle, and now we can continue on and look at our identifying marks. And so what we have to do now is I've stood up the front, and I've made a claim. Actually, I've agreed with you. You made a claim. You told me who it was, right? This is a pretty big claim. We need to back it up, right? The Bible says some very specific things, and if these aren't exactly fulfilled, then we know we have the wrong entity. Isn't that so? So let's start with their identifying marks. We'll start with this one here. It would arise among the ten out of the head of the fourth beast. Did the Vatican City arise out of Imperial Rome? Yes, indeed. You can't get more central than the center of the city of Rome itself. Did it arise after the ten and before the seven and did it uproot three kingdoms in coming to power? And by the way, some people ask me the question, well, isn't Vatican City part of Italy? No, it's not. 
His own separate sovereign country has its own government, it has its own currency, it has its own postal service, it has its own police force, it has, has its own standing army. You can go right down through the list. It is entirely separate as a nation from Italy, the smallest nation in Western Europe. So what happened here with all of these details over here? To understand the question, we have to go back to the time of Constantine. When Constantine came to power as emperor of imperial Rome, he professed conversion to Christianity. That's not the only thing he did. He also moved the capital, the seat of the empire, he moved it from the city of Rome all the way over to the city of Istanbul or Byzantium or what he called Constantinople. He liked himself, so he named a city after himself. In doing so, it left a vacuum in the West. You see, Rome was the prize that everybody had wanted for hundreds of years. And now the emperor wasn't there anymore. And as a result, the West completely collapsed. Rome was sacked and destroyed on numerous occasions while the emperors were over in Constantinople. It was a very strategic move because Constantinople was a very powerful city indeed. And so when you come down to the time of Justinian, Justinian looks to the West. He has to solve a problem in the West. And at this time, there wasn't just a problem of a power vacuum in the West. There was also a problem where a number of the bishops were all having a big argument as to who was the number one bishop. So Justinian put out a decree, and in that decree, he solved a number of problems at once. First of all, he put down the argument among the bishops. He said, no, 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 the one in Rome, he is number one. So he made the Bishop of Rome the universal bishop over the whole world and at the same time gave to him political power. And the titles of the imperial Roman Caesars were bequeathed to the Bishop of Rome. For example, if you look at this engraving right here, you'll find that this is uh, an engraving made by Caesar Vespasian. And notice here it says, Imperial Caesar Vespasian Pontifex Maximus, to this very day, we call the Pope of Rome the Pontiff. Isn't that so? Where did he get that title from? He got that title because political power was given to him by Imperial Rome. Now, the problem was that at this particular time, Rome, the city of Rome, was controlled by the Ostrogoths. The Ostrogoths were controlling who was elected to be bishop and who wasn't. And so Justinian had to do something about that. And he was opposed in the West by three major nations, um, the Vandals, the Heroli, and the Ostrogoths. They differed with him significantly theologically. And of course, he had to do something about it. He stirred up a war between the Vandals and the Heroli in which they wiped each other out. He sent his general Belisarius to the West who wiped out, destroyed the Ostrogoths. These three nations that were standing in the way were so thoroughly destroyed that they never recovered. You will not find them in Europe today or North Africa. They are gone, just as the prophecy said. Okay, so by the decree of Justinian, there he is, the papacy received the empire's seat and the empire's authority, and then under Belisarius, who drove out the Ostrogoths in the year 538, liberated the Pope in Rome, destroyed the Ostrogoths, he received the empire's power. 
Let me show you an interesting prophecy in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. In fact, we'll start in chapter 12. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 3, There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. So here we have a great red dragon. Seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. You go over to chapter 13, verse 1, I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Sounds the same. The only difference so far is the location of the crowns. The sovereignty has moved from the beast to the horns when you come to chapter 13. However, if you continue reading, the one here in chapter 13 looks like a leopard. So we have to ask ourselves the question, who is the one in chapter 12? Who is the one in chapter 12? The great red dragon? Who's that? That's Satan? Yes. And Satan works through earthly powers. Isn't that so? Okay, we go down a little bit further. We find out which earthly power, which earthly nation, because a beast is a symbol of a nation, is Satan working through right here. The Bible says about the woman in verse uh, 4, or about the dragon, his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child. As soon as it was born, it goes on and talks about the birth of Jesus Christ. Who was it that tried to destroy Jesus at his birth? Herod, who was a part of which empire? Imperial Rome. So Imperial Rome tries to destroy Jesus at his birth. Satan here is working through Imperial Rome, isn't that so? Symbolized by the dragon. Go to Revelation 13. Watch this. Oh, this is interesting. Watch this. Verse 2. Now this is the Antichrist. And the beast, the Antichrist which I saw, was like a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear. His mouth is the mouth of the lion. And the dragon, imperial Rome, gives to the Antichrist his power, his seat, and great authority. Is that what happened in history? Did Emperor Justinian give to the papacy his seat, the city of Rome? Yes, he did. Did he give him power? Yes, he did, the decree. Did he give him great authority? Absolutely fulfilled, just as the Bible said it would. Okay, so let's go back to our identifying marks that we have so far. As we work our way through them, we find a summary so far. And here we have the papacy became a political power by decree of the empire. Yep. It uprooted three other kingdoms as it rose to power and it arose from the Roman Empire. Then we find it received the power seat and great authority of the empire and it received universal power after 476 and by the year 538. So that's our first three identifying marks exactly fulfilled right there. Now we continue on. The next one here is this. The prophecy said that he would speak great words against the Most High. And we identified that last night when the Bible speaks about speaking great words against the Most High as being blasphemy. And blasphemy being two things. Number one, claiming to be God. And number two, claiming the power to be able to forgive sins. Now, if I was to stand up the front here 
And I was to quote to you this evening from Protestant or evangelical sources or Islamic sources or Hindu sources or any other kind of sources about what they say about the Vatican, that would probably be a little unfair, wouldn't it? Because what they're saying might be true or it might not be true. So, but it would be fair if we quoted their sources, isn't that so? Let's ask them, well, what do you actually say about yourself? What are the claims that are made? Well, let's read a few. And God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest, whether not to pardon or pardon, according as they refuse to give absolution, provided the penitent is capable of it. Well, that's interesting. God has to follow what the priest says when it comes to forgiveness of sins. The poor sinner kneels at his confessor's feet. He knows that he is not speaking to an ordinary man, but to another Christ. He hears the words, I absolve your sins and the hidden load of sin drops from his soul forever. And another one, the priest does not only declare that the sinner is forgiven, but he, the priest, really forgives him. So great is the power of the priest that the judgments of heaven itself are subject to his decision. And John Paul II, rebutting a belief widely shared by Protestants and a growing number of Roman Catholics, Pope John Paul II dismissed on Tuesday the widespread idea that one can obtain forgiveness directly from God and exhorted Catholics to confess more often to their priests. In other words, John Paul II very clearly stated, it is impossible to receive forgiveness of sins directly from God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That's Jesus, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, the other part of this was not only claiming the power to forgive sins, but they're claiming to be God. The Pope is of so great a dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God, the Pope as it were the vicar of God on earth, chief king of kings, having plenitude of power. Leo Thirteenth, in his encyclical letter said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty, the supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds therefore requires, together with a perfect accord in the one faith, complete submission and obedience of the will to the church and the Roman pontiff as to God himself. Let me tell you, friends, when it comes to complete submission, I don't do that to a human being here on earth. I do that to a human being who lives in heaven. Somebody who gave his life for me. I'm happy to give complete submission to him, aren't you? Yeah. Ah, praise God. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. And John Paul II said, once again, my emphasis right here, have no fear when people call me the vicar of Christ. That means in place of, vicar means in place of. When they say to me, Holy Father or your holiness. These are titles obviously in the Bible that belong to God alone. John Paul continues on, he says, Christ himself declared, call no one on earth your father. You have but one Father in heaven. One must not be afraid of these words either. And so when John Paul says, don't be afraid of calling me by these words that belong to God alone in heaven, he is in effect saying, I am God. It's pretty heavy stuff. I, I warned you, we're going to have a serious subject this evening, didn't I? The Bible says that his look was more stout than his fellows. He was stronger than the others. Let me share with you a little bit of history. Over the last couple of thousand years, 
During the Dark Ages, the papacy reigned supreme and one of the ways in which it ruled over the kings of the earth was by the power of interdict. Interdict works a little bit like this. And for those of you who are Roman Catholics, you'll be very familiar with the system within the Roman Catholic Church. Salvation is found through the sacraments. Isn't that so? And what the Pope would do, if a nation disobeyed him, he would command the cessation of all sacraments within that nation. The moment that he did that, the entire population was automatically condemned to eternal hellfire until such time as he removed the interdict. Now the terror that that would create within those nations would force those nations then to obey what the Pope said. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of the most famous ones is uh, Henry IV of the Holy Roman Empire. The most powerful king in the world at that time, the equivalent of today's Barack Obama. Got in a quarrel with the Pope. The Pope placed him under interdict. He was so terrified that he travelled down to where the Pope was living at Canossa, the castle of Canossa. When I was there, it was a nice sunny day. He arrived there in midwinter. It was ice and snow. Now you think about this, he is the most powerful man in the world. He arrives there and the Pope says, no, you can't come in. You cannot see my face. You stand outside in the snow. You wear sackcloth, you put ashes on your head and in three days' time, then maybe I will see you. Is that a lot of power? If you can do that to the most powerful man in the world, that's a lot of power. Of course, King John took his crown off, placed it at the feet of the Pope's representative who kicked it with his foot. Was England a minor power in the, in the Dark Ages? No. King John was so scared of the interdict that he, he, he gave the whole nation of England and Ireland to the Pope, just gave it to him and then rendered it back for a 1,000 marks a year. And of course, that originated the great document, the first great document of freedom, otherwise known as the Magna Carta or the Magnificent Charter. Does this kind of thing still continue today? Of course it does. The New York governor, Mario Cuomo, was threatened with excommunication by the late Cardinal John O'Connor due to Cuomo's belief that Catholic opposition to abortion shouldn't be enforced through civil law. Now, I'm not standing here to promote abortion, don't get me wrong, but what I do see here is somebody who's using the power of interdict to affect our governments. Nothing has changed. We continue on. The Bible says that he would persecute God's people. He would be a union of religion and politics together. Is the Vatican City a government? Yes. Is it a church? Yes. Is it the unity of those two things together? Yes, just as the Bible said. Now, let me share with you something. Jesus very specifically said that church and state were two things that were to be entirely separate from each other. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The constitution of ancient Israel was set up in such a way that you had the priests who worked in the temple and the king who sat on his throne and the two didn't mix. Why? Because whenever you get those two things mixing together, you have a disaster. Of course, it created a disaster in the Dark Ages. When you talk about persecution, let's go back and let's consider. We think of Osama as being a rather brutal man. He killed around about 3,000 people in one day. Not the only person involved, but anyway, that's a story for another day. 
we go back to the Dark Ages and we find the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in which 80,000 people died in one day. Do you know why they died? They died because of their adherence to this book. They weren't using fancy technology, jet planes loaded with fuel. They're just using cold, hard steel. It's pretty serious stuff. In 1209, 60,000 Albigenses died in Beziers in southern France. And it was interesting because the town was partly Roman Catholic as well. And they supported the Albigenses who were there because they knew them to be good, upright people. And when the army was storming the city, they asked the priests who were with them, how do we tell who's Roman Catholic and who's not? And they said, just kill them all, let God sort them out. 60,000 people died. 24th of April, 1655, 18,000 Waldenses died in northern Italy in one day. And you might say, well, that's a little bit smaller than the last ones. Bear in mind that the Waldenses at this time numbered only 21,000 people. Nearly wiped out. Catholic Cardinal said this. Cardinal Alfred Bodorillat. The Catholic Church loudly proclaims that she has a horror of blood. Nevertheless, when confronted by heresy, has recourse to force, to corporal punishment, to torture. She creates tribunals like those of the Inquisition. Encourages a crusade or a religious war. Especially did she act thus in the 16th century with regard to Protestants. She lived in Italy, the Low Countries, and above all in Spain. The funeral pyres of the Inquisition. In France and England, she tortured the heretics whilst in both in France and Germany. She encouraged and aided the religious wars. No one will deny that we have here a great scandal to our contemporaries. Indeed, even among our friends and our brothers, we find those who dare not look this problem in the face, they ask permission from the church to ignore or even deny all those acts and institutions of the past which have made orthodoxy compulsory. Another statement, that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. Today we live in a world where people talk about the religion of Islam as being a violent religion. And it can be seen as a violent religion in places, isn't that so? You study the history of Islam, it pales into comparison with Christianity. That's the sad reality. The very sad reality. Pius IX in his Syllabus of Errors, wrote this. He said that the Church of Rome possesses the supremacy of both powers, the spiritual and the temporal. That's church and church and state. She has the right to employ both swords in the extirpation of heresy. That in the exercise of this right in the past, she has never exceeded by a hair's breadth her just prerogatives and that what she has done aforetime, she may do in time to come as often as occasion shall require and opportunity may serve. That's a little chilling, isn't it? Well, let's continue on. The Bible said that it would persecute God's people, that it would be diverse, a union of church and state. What do we have here? Time magazine, how Reagan and the Pope conspired to assist in Poland's solidarity movement. Notice what we have here. A church-state alliance. Fascinating story, that one. I wish we had time to get into it in more detail. We continue on. The Bible says that the Catholic Church, the papacy, the Vatican would think to change times and laws. 
Here's a statement that they make. The Pope has the power to change times, to abrogate laws and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. He can pronounce sentences and judgments in contradiction to the rights of nations, to the law of God and man. It says here that he would persecute for 1260 years. And this might be a little hard for you to read. Here's the Ten Commandments as you find them in the Bible. Here is the Ten Commandments as you find them in the Catechism. They are different. The first one says, you shall not have other gods before me. First one over here basically says the same thing. I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. Then over here, the next one says, you shall not make yourself any carved image. You shall not bow down yourself to them. And over here, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Wait a minute, that one's not there. You shall not take the name of your Lord your God in vain is number three over here. It's number two over here. Number two in the Bible is entirely missing out of the catechism. They split number 10 into two parts because you can't have the nine commandments, right? We might laugh, but we need to take this seriously. And you have to ask yourself the question, why did they take that commandment out that speaks against carved images? For 160 years, the papacy received political power that came into effect by the decree of Justinian in the year 538. So let's begin over here with the papacy rising to power in 538. And then let's stretch that for 1260 years. The Bible says that this would end with a deadly wound. Watch this. This is fascinating stuff. You go 1260 years from the papacy came to power and it brings you to the year 1798. And guess what happened in 1798? The papacy at this time had, received, had, had reached an incredibly low ebb in the world. It had been largely seen for what it really was and nobody was giving it a whole lot of credibility at that time. Napoleon was in a quarrel with the Pope. He sent his general Berthier down into Rome. He took the Pope prisoner took him, carried him in captivity back to France, placed him in exile where he died. He decreed that there would never be another Pope and he replaced the Roman Catholic government with a Roman Republic. He did not abolish the church, he abolished the government. And so what you find here is the political power, the ingredient that creates persecution or gives gives opportunity for persecution, was established here. It was removed here right on time. Exactly 1260 years later. How did the historian, or let's look at how a historian describes this. The papacy was extinct. Not a vestige of its existence remained in among all the Roman Catholic powers. Not a finger was stirred in its defence. The eternal city no longer had prince or pontiff. Its bishop was a dying captive in foreign lands. And the decree was already announced that no successor would be allowed in its place. It was a deadly wound. You see, you think about this for a moment. Here you have an event taking place like this and nobody even stirred. Nobody even turned a hair. The papacy had come to an end. Nobody believed that it could ever come back. Imagine if you did that today. Imagine if the president of France sent a French general down to Rome, took the Pope off the throne, took him back to France and decreed that the Vatican was over, it was done with, it was gone. Do you think there would be a few nations that would be coming to the rescue? 
Oh, yeah. Starting with the United States, right? Absolutely. There would be some nations coming to their rescue. The question, my question I have is this. Have things changed since 1798 in our world? Has that deadly wound been healing? You know, I found this to be a very telling um, photograph. When we had the greatest media event our world has ever seen. More people watch this one event right here, the papal funeral, than any other event on the planet. Greater than any superstar, greater than any politician, greater than any celebrity, greater than any sports event, it is a religious event. And I found it interesting because here you have kneeling before the Pope President of the United States, ex-president of the United States, another ex-president right here, um, first lady, secretary of state, etc. Things have changed, friends, quite dramatically since those times. There was a deadly wound followed by a miraculous healing. And so we go back to where we began. We began with a symbol of a woman. The Bible describes a woman holding a golden cup. And here she is. You wonder where this is? St. Peter's Basilica, proudly displayed for all to see. You see, one of the most effective ways that you can hide something is to hide it in plain sight. And here she is again, right inside the church. And what is she holding this time? Cradling in her arms. Is this baby Jesus? No, indeed. There is a message going out to those who are observant that there is a two-tier system of religion operating here where the masses don't really know what's going on. But for the initiated, the symbols are all there. Here she is, once again, holding the serpent. The Vatican Hall, she's found holding the Egyptian pyramid, rays of the sun. And I found this one rather interesting. Just down the road from St. Peter's Basilica, you have another church, a Jesuit church, the Church of Jesus. And here you have the same woman, She's holding a lightning bolt in her hand and destroying some things over here. Now, if you want to know what's going on here, you have to, have, you have to look very, very close indeed. But if you get right up close and you know where to look, friend showed me, you can find what it is that she is crushing to death right here. Three significant things. Who are these two guys? Well, here you have them. Martin Luther. Why is she crushing Martin Luther? Because Martin Luther said, salvation is by grace alone. Here's the other one. John Calvin. Why is she crushing John Calvin? Because he said exactly the same thing. And then you go across to the other side and you find a small demon tearing pages out of the Bible. It's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Friends, the question that we have is the question is raised in Revelation chapter 13. Let me draw your attention to it. Revelation chapter 13. Speaking about the end of time. In verse 7, the Bible says it was given unto him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, powers given over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And then in verse 8 it says this, and all that live upon the earth shall do what? What is the highest form of worship? 
obedience. You can claim any religion you want, but if you obey the papacy, you are worshipping the papacy by your actions. Isn't that so? But it doesn't stop there, and that's a good thing. It says, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we know there are going to be those at the end of time who have their names written where? In the Lamb's book of life. Why is it that the Bible speaks about the Lamb's book of life right here? You see, the answer is so simple. The Bible could have used many different names for Jesus, but when it uses the name of the Lamb, it refers to his sacrifice. Isn't that so? So how do you get your name in the Lamb's book of life? It's by following his example. Isn't that so? Now, when Jesus was the Lamb of God, he was giving his life as a sacrifice for us. Well, how do we follow his example? Friends, there's so many passages I could show you here, but I'll show you just one really quickly. Romans Chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Jesus was the lamb because he died as a sacrifice for us. We get our names in the Lamb's book of life by following him in sacrifice, not necessarily the sacrifice of our physical lives, but the entire surrender of ourselves to him. That's how we get our names in the Lamb's book of life. And that's where true obedience to Jesus is found. That's the acid test that the Bible is bringing up in Revelation chapter 13. It's those who are surrendered entirely to Jesus Christ, who are prepared to do anything that he says. And friends, I've got to tell you, Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. He says, stop and think about this. When you realize how good Jesus is, when you realize the mercies of Jesus, how can you hold back? He says, this is your reasonable service. He says, it's like in, we would say, this is the least you could do for somebody who loves you so much. Friends, let me ask you this evening. Do you want to give your life to Jesus Christ and have your name in the Lamb's book of life? I know I do, friends. Praise God. We serve a wonderful God. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this prophecy. It has been a serious prophecy, but an important one for us to cover. And Father, we pray now, as we consider the implications that above everything else, we will be directed to you. It was you who authored the prophecy in the first place. And you authored it for the purpose of pointing us to you, the Lamb of God, our true mediator, the one who gave his life for us. And Father, we pray that we will be drawn closer to you this evening than ever before. And so we pray for your blessing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 2 
Jamie George played Wonderful Words of Life.